So in the beginning of the Bible, and this is where we start off, we, we know this account of, of as we are Christians growing, we, and even if you weren't a Christian, most people know what the beginning of, uh, of creation story is in, in the Bible, right? Adam and Eve, placed in the garden. And as Adam and Eve were placed in the garden, there was a tree also there, placed there, that God told them not to eat because it would kill them if they did eat from it. And we know that to be the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And then there was a serpent in the Garden of Eden. And that serpent lied to Eve and told Eve, and Eve told Adam, look, if you eat of this fruit, it's not going to kill you, but it's going to make you like God. So they believed the lie. They wanted to be like God, so they ate the fruit. And ever since then, sin entered the world. And when sin entered the world, the source of evil it remains to this day. This is what we still fight and battle with even now. So this is the beginning of the story, and it's, it's tragic when we, we see that, that the evil that is among us in this world today. And then we have to look at ourselves, and we see the evil that is in, within us, and we're wondering, where is our hope then? But back in Genesis, God even gave them hope back then. Because God made a promise to Adam and Eve. To Adam and Eve, he told them, look, you're going to have a future son. And that son is going to crush the serpent's head. He said that as he would crush his head, the serpent would bite his heel. He would strike this man's heel. So in, in that process, there's already in the prophecy, there kind of this, this, this wound that this son is going to get placed upon him so that that when we we see that that's the cross the wounds that jesus would inflict would be inflicted above yet in that process as jesus is crushing the head of the serpent it's destroying the work of satan completely now in our old testament after that point adam and eve now sin is in the world now god began to have his plan unfold so that we can have that prophecy come to be to this day. And he begins to focus on one particular man. We know him to be Abraham. And Abraham was given a promise that through his family, goodness and blessings were going to be given and restored to all the world. And then later on, one of Abraham's grandsons, Judah, as he's growing up, he also receives a promise that a king is going to come from his line and that the whole world was going to follow that king and that king was going to bring peace and harmony to this world. And so now all of the Israelites and the the Hebrew people are waiting for this king to come who's going to deal with sin And then in that time, a man named David, a shepherd boy, is growing up and then is nurtured and is called to become king. And perhaps at that point, people were wondering, is this King David, is he the man who's going to crush the head of the serpent? But then we know David failed, didn't he? 
David was infected with sin himself, and he himself was not the Messiah. And then God came to David and told David, look, the Messiah is going to come from your sons, from your line. And I'm going to put him in a kingdom that's going to reign forever. And that gave King David hope. And so the Israelites then are continuing now, and they have kings and kings after King David. But then when you look at the story of all the kings, man, they were terrible. They multiplied wives and worshipped idols and got addicted to the money and sex and power. And then Israel eventually, because of all of the immorality, began to crumble. Began to fall apart as a strong nation. So the, Babylon, the Babylonians came and they conquered Israel. And they took Israelites captive and they took them back to Babylon as slaves. Some of them remained. As we were singing that song, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. Think about it. You were given a land that was promised to you, but because of sin, now for 70 years, you are put into captivity. And during that captivity, you're thinking, wow, like what, what happened to the Messiah? What happened to the promised king who was going to come save us? But because some of them knew through God's word, that Jesus was going to come, these guys were known as the prophets. And the prophets would continue to give Israel hope, continue to give them promises that there was a Messiah who was going to come. And the prophets spoke about the king, and there was a chapter in Isaiah who was one of the prophets that gave us insight to the Messiah's mission. In Isaiah chapter 53, I have the verse up on the screens for you, in Isaiah chapter 53, Isaiah would write, But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. And then in Isaiah 53, verse 10, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. So now this is a unique prophecy about the Messiah who was going to come. Isaiah was saying that the Messiah was going to be wounded, and there was a purpose behind it. That the Messiah would be, would be wounded for our sins. That our sins would be placed upon him, and that eventually the Lord was going to prosper his ways, and, and that the Messiah would live eternally. His days would be prolonged. And now, so they're in that place where the prophets are telling them, look, their Messiah is going to come. He's going to be wounded for our, our transgressions. He's going to come. And between the Old Testament and the New Testament, do you know how many years passed? 400 years. 400 years they're waiting. And it's like, wow, like what? I, I, can't imagine, I, I can imagine that some people gave up hope. They said, just like they're saying today, Jesus isn't coming back. My grandparents used to say that. And that's what, 70 years ago? But now 400 years of silence. 400 years of waiting. And the Messiah still hasn't shown up at that point. 
But then what do we know the New Testament begins with? The four Gospels, right? Jesus coming. So then the New Testament, it's reminding us that, that Jesus came. He was the fulfillment of that promise. And each Gospel writer introduces Jesus coming to this world. In particular, as we know this morning, we're going to look at John's gospel, introducing Jesus as the word of God, coming to fulfill these promises. In John's gospel, Jesus' account, it goes even back to the beginning of of Genesis, of what we were talking about. And this is how it starts. We're going to read in John's gospel, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. John wrote, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. So he begins off right here, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's how the Bible began. We we saw that in in the beginning, God created the heavens and the universe, right? The heavens and the earth. And when we look back at the Genesis account, God literally spoke these things to be. God would say, let there be light, and then light would appear. He was to let, let dry land appear, and dry land would appear. Let plants grow, and the plants would grow. Which leads me to my first point this morning, and I encourage us always to take notes during these studies because we want to not leave here the same way that we came in. So our first point, point one, the word is all-powerful. And that is the word as in Jesus, the word. Just by speaking a word, God creates things. And creation comes from the word. The word here in the Greek is the word logos. You've heard this before. And a person's word, your words, they express, they manifest your thoughts. And as it goes out from you, it becomes separate from you. And sometimes our words are sadly not true representatives of what we are, of who we are, right? When we speak falsehoods. But if God is truth, his word is true. This is the power of of God's word in my life. That when God says something, when he speaks it through his word, we know it to be true. God is always faithful because God cannot say a lie. When God proclaims that we're saved here, it means we're saved. When God says, you are my child, you are my children, we are his children. When he says, look, I've set you free from sin, that means you've been set free from sin. When God says there's no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, then you don't have to be condemned anymore. He says that he has sanctified us, meaning he set us apart, that we're to be not of this world anymore. That means we are an instrument, a vessel for God, not for our own desires. Then we could believe that to be true, but we could also reject that, can't we? 
When God says we are redeemed, we've been bought, purchased by his son's blood. He literally has bought our life. And not so that he can buy it and then misuse it and mistreat it, but he brings our life into something so much better and makes us something so much better than what we were. And we can believe this. See, I don't have a heavenly father that I can't trust. I have a father who I can trust. And I can trust that he speaks to me through his word because it's living, right? Sharper than any two-edged sword, the word says. This book right here will keep you from sin. But sin will keep you from this book. So we need to be in it. Again, in verse 1, he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In verse 2, he was in the beginning with God. Now you notice how the phrase is repeated, in the beginning. And it, it refers to the Word's eternal nature. Now here's something that you guys should know as believers, something that is true to the attributes of who our God is, is that God lives in one eternal presence, meaning he is outside of time. He knows everything all at once, which leads me to point two. God in one eternal presence. You see, we don't live in one eternal presence like God does. We live in moments of time, which is kind of, when you think about it, a little trippy for me because it's like two seconds ago, it's gone. It's gone again. And it's gone. Yeah, like, and we can't get that back because we live in moments at a time. However, God in his omniscience, meaning all-knowing, he can see all of time together. So imagine that you were on a train. Let's say the Metrolink riding up from San Diego up to LA. Cool little drive, scenic view, you can see the beach. And on the way, you're passing by San Onofre. You see the nuclear plant pass by. You see the San Juan Capistrano mission pass by. And you experience time moving because your environment is changing. And you know you're moving. And you're on one of these carts in this train. Now, the conductor of the train is experiencing things at a different time than you are because he's been before us, right? So that's like people from the past experiencing things before we did. And we're all on separate parts of this cart, of this train. Just like history has had people experience time before us. And we could only see what, what's outside of our little window. We don't know what's coming ahead maybe. We can't see what's behind us anymore. We can only see the now. But God, imagine he's like the Marines. They're, they get in, in their helicopter, their Apache helicopter over there in Camp Pendleton base. Starts taking off and they, the, the Apache helicopter starts flying over the train. And as they look down, it, they could see the whole train. They see it from beginning to end. That's how God sees time. He sees the beginning, he sees where we're at now, he sees the end, and he knows all things. To me, that's trippy because John, the guy who wrote the, the revelation of Jesus Christ, the end of our Bible, 
It says that he was able to see these visions, these literal visions that he was seeing of what was going to come. And it's like John was on one little cart of the train and God picked John up, raptured him, took him into heaven, the eternal presence, and said, look down at the timeline. And John could see now into the future things that were reality, things that were going to happen. It's like, whoa, right? Who needs drugs when you got God? Now, God knows every hill, every valley you guys are going to go through. And he sees it all. Something I'm comforted by this because he sees it all is that God has a plan for your life. And his plan for you is good. And he loves you. And if we just say, okay, God, you're in control. You know, through all the hiccups in life, through the setbacks and discouragements, you know that you want me to be with you and doing good. And you have a plan. So we could kind of just rest easy now, as right now in our lives, sometimes things get hectic, and saying, look, God has a plan. He knows what he's doing. Let's trust him with it. Let's submit our plans to him. Because his plan is always way better than, than what we want. Now, in these verses that we read here in verse 1 and 2, the center of the verses, when it says, and the word was with God, and the word was God, the word is both with God, and the word is God. And there's those two distinguishments right there. Jehovah's Witnesses, they'll say, and they'll add a letter, the letter A, they'll say, the word was a God, like a little God, like it's not the same as the Almighty God, which is sad. And, and they've added it from the original Greek. It wasn't originally there. They added to it. They added to the Bible. But no, God, the word is with God and the word is God. So two distinct persons. And we know that to be our trinity, right? Three distinct persons, one God. Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. He's not 50-50. He's not like Hercules who is half God and half man. And sometimes he, he's not being one and sometimes he's being the other. No, he's always 100% God and 100% man. In Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, the author writes, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. I love that. Jesus knows what we, what we go through as human beings because Jesus was a human being. Jesus suffered. He went through hardship. He went through trial. He was tempted as we are, yet without sin. Which leads me to my third point. Jesus is everything we need. Jesus was our example of how we can live godly lives. You see, we cannot deny Jesus to be God and be saved. 
Jesus said, if you deny me, you deny my father. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the father but by me. So Jesus is everything we need. He's everything I need. He's my protector. He's my provider, my counselor. And the reason why he is everything we need is because he is God. And we all have the necessity of God in our life. We all have that hole in our heart that only God can fill. Here's something that's kind of cool as an argument for the existence of God. It's the argument of necessity. Everything that your body, that you need in life, you need oxygen, you need water, you need food, it exists. Even if you can't get water, because you need water, it exists. And in that same way, because we need God, God exists. We need a Savior. We need a God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, Paul wrote, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You see, when we ask Jesus to be in our life, we are asking the creator of the universe to dwell within us. His righteousness is then given to us. And I think so many times that's overlooked in our life. The fact that God, that Jesus himself comes and lives inside of you. And we uh, we think we're all alone at times. We think we're trying to fight this life by ourselves, denying the power that God has placed his only son inside of us, the Holy Spirit teaching us, being our counselor. In verse three of John's gospel, he says, all things were made through him and without him, nothing was made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men and the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. So creation at the beginning, God began to bring light into darkness. And with the coming of Jesus now, God again is sending his light into the darkness of men's hearts. Which leads me to my fourth point. Jesus is our light. How do we make darkness go away in a room? You turn the light on, right? Amen. You simply hit the two buttons on the right there. <laughs> and the, light, the darkness cannot conquer the light once the light comes on. You don't see like the shadow like trying to like fight the light to stay in the room. No, the darkness has to leave. And in that same manner, when you begin to bring the light of Christ into your mind, into your heart, those dark things, they can't stay. But it's when we leave Jesus out of our mind, when we leave Jesus out of our heart, that those dark things begin to grow. The doubts, the worries, anxieties, the vices and sins of life, they fester. And this is the constant struggle that we have. But I know that light is more powerful than darkness. 
So if you're in a season of darkness, just ask Jesus to come into that season. Ask him to be your light, to reveal truth to you. Countless times that I've been in a situation where I didn't know whether I was supposed to go left or supposed to go right. And I just had to ask Jesus, God, give me wisdom, give me discernment in this moment. And God leads us. There's times where he's put me in the place where I can't make the decision at that moment. And I'm just like, okay, God, you know what? I'm going to pray and ask that you would lead me in it. And he never lets us down. He always leads us. But it's when we disobey and turn away from it. John the, the Baptist would talk about this light who was coming to the world. In verses 6 through 13, I'm going to read these verses. We're not going to go too deep in them, but I, I do want us just to kind of see what the forerunner of Jesus' time was saying. It says in verse 6, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but he was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him. And the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. But as many received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So before Jesus came, his relative John the Baptist came and was saying, hey, make way, prepare the road, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Prepare a way in the wilderness, he would shout out to the Israelites, and especially to the religious Pharisees, who were supposed to be a place that wasn't, dry and barren spiritually. They were supposed to be giving people life and light. But John the Baptist had to preach against them. And he was preparing Israel for something new that God was going to do through his son Jesus. But some rejected that light, whereas others entered the light and came into God's family as children. And in that same way, we also are able to wit- to be a witness to that light that is coming back for his church. Which leads me to my fifth point. We are called to evangelism. When I think of evangelism right now, what's on my heart is I, I want to go jam up Glendora High School. It's in, it's in my heart to just let people know, hey, there's a new church that, that started off in your city. So keep that in prayer. I'm just going to share with you guys. Keep that in prayer for for us. My wife and I a couple weeks ago and we're going to do it again soon. We just went up Lone Hill and went door to door knocking on people's houses and sh- saying, "Hey, there's a church down the street from you just so you guys know." And we're praying and hoping God continues to to let especially those people who aren't saved invite them to church. You know, it, it you'll notice at churches that on Easter and on Christmas the places get packed. 
And the reason being is because people, they, they try to find some sort of life insurance and some sort of meaning uh, of gathering close to the Lord on special times, special occasion, occasions, but then they go back to their old lifestyle. But we don't want to be that way as believers. We want to be steadfast, walking forward, being witnesses to people out there. In verse 14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So now here's the eternal world, the eternal word, the same word that was there creating everything, becoming a mortal human being named Jesus. Jesus was there at the beginning creating everything. Jesus is also eternal. He has no start point. I I feel like I'm getting a lot of thoughts of, of apologetics, but this is another one. Can God create a rock so big that he cannot move it? Hmm, maybe. Because if he can create a rock so big, that he can't move it, then does that mean he's not all powerful? But if he can't create that rock that's so big that he can't move it, does that mean he is not all powerful? It's like, wait, what? People get tripped out by this question. Here's the thing though. God is spirit, first of all. So the question within itself is a fallacy. And here's another thing. God won't go against his own character. So God is eternal right? Everything that he, which means he has no beginning and has no end. Everything that God creates has a what? Has a beginning. So God is an eternal being. We're finite. Our souls will live forever, but we all have a start point. And that Jesus there in the beginning was also eternal. No no beginning for him. He always existed in perfect harmony with the Holy Spirit. And in that we see the love of the Father being passed on to the Son, the Holy Spirit. And and then it says in verse 14 that the Word became flesh, that human being who created, or that God who created everything became a human being and dwelt among us. And the word for dwelt, it literally means to live in a tent. And it it points back to the tabernacle that Moses and all the Israelites would set up every few days and then tear it down as they were following the cloud and they would have their worship services in there. And there God's presence dwelt with his people. And then later on, the Israelites, in order to celebrate that, they would take their kids camping. I don't know if you guys have ever gone camping with your family before, but it's a pretty cool experience to go out to the wilderness set up the tent, and live out there in the wild, right? But that tent, you're not going to stay there forever, hopefully not. I see a lot of them right now, that's that's what people are doing. But hopefully that tent is a temporary dwelling, something you're going to tear down and put it away. And this is what I, I see, that God's presence dwelling with his people through Jesus Jesus becomes now 
that tabernacle for us. Which leads me to point six. Christ lives in us. Jesus is that human tabernacle. And through Jesus, God and humanity were united as one. God's word then becomes a person. That's Jesus. Now Christianity is the only religion where the God of that religion comes and lives inside of the worshiper. And that's, to me, that's amazing. That's awesome. That the power of God can flow through us. And if this is true, it matters what we do with our bodies. It matters what we do. It matters how and what we allow God to work in us and through us. Because sometimes I myself get caught up in just the outward ministry that I I love to see God working through me, that I forget that I also need to see God work in me that I need to take a step back as I'm studying, as I'm reading, and say, God, what do you want me personally to learn from this? What are you saying to me? And you guys have ministries outside of this place. You guys do, whether it's evangelism, or, or, or showing people truth, or being nice to people out there in, in the world, so that they can see there's something different about you. You guys have your Christian posts outside of this place. And maybe you also enjoy to see God working through you. Maybe there's one of your, your friends who calls you up ever so often who just needs a word of encouragement. And you love to give them that word of encouragement. But are you also let, allowing yourself to be encouraged? If you're trying to train someone in holiness, are you also allowing yourself to be trained in holiness? Continuing on in verse 16. And of his fullness, we have all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. So this is really cool. First of all, the idea of grace. Grace is something that we cannot earn. God gives it to us, and we could either receive it or we could reject it. But we as believers, we get to receive that grace of God's salvation in our life, how he declares us his sons and uses us. Because before they had that law of Moses, which they had to live as under the law and make sure that they were doing the sacrifices and still living by faith, but now with grace, Jesus becomes that ultimate sacrifice for us. And then he says, no one has seen God at any time except Jesus, who is in the bosom of the Father. And that's the relationship, the closeness that Jesus has to the head of the Trinity. Now, I don't know if you guys know this, but in the Bible, whenever you see words that are italicized, you know what italicized means? It's like they're like, instead of like that, they're Toof. Whenever you see words that are italicized, they look fancy. Do you guys know what that means? It means they weren't rig- originally there. 
means that the translators added those words so that we, it could help us to better understand what the author was trying to say. And if you look at verse 18 in my Bible, the hymn at the end of verse 18 is italicized. So what does that mean? It says then, no one has ever seen God at any time, the only begotten son who is in the bosom of the father, he has declared. Declared what? It could be him, yeah. But I, I, I see that John here at the beginning of, of his gospel, he, he's now creating this story, like getting ready the setup of the, of the entire gospel. And he's saying, the word who is in the bosom of the father, he has declared, and then he continues on with his gospel. And this, now it's an invitation he leaves that sentence open because it's an invitation for us to keep reading the account of the gospel. To discover yourself, for yourself, what Jesus wants to make known to you. And this leads me to my last point of our study this morning. Is we need a personal relationship. We need to discover what God wants to declare to us. The Bible is an invitation to know and to be known by the Father and the Son who together are the one God. And we each need our own personal relationship. We cannot live vicariously through others to God. So perhaps maybe it's like, oh my, I don't think that this isn't us here. But people sometimes will say, oh well, I was born into a Christian household. I was baptized when I was a little kid. And therefore, I'm saved. I'm good. And then they live as heathens do. But we cannot live vicariously. God doesn't have any grandchildren. God only has children. And and we need to have that personal relationship with him. The encouragement that I, that I give you guys too as we're wrapping up the end of this year is to get back to those first things that we did when we were first saved. What was it like for you when you first began to experience the Holy Spirit talking and speaking to you in your life? How was that joy and that, that excitement for you? And how did he speak to you? Did he not speak to you through the word? And what about through Bible studies and through going to church and hearing other people teach on what God's word says? So there's word, the word, right? But then there's prayer also that needs to be there. The way we communicate. And it's a two-way street. You pray to God and then you also listen to him. Say, okay, God, what do you want to say to me now? And then there's fellowship, right? We're not supposed to stay away from the gathering of the brethren, but we are called to gather with one another. Because people and other believers in your life are going to help you as you're going through this life to grow stronger in the Lord. They're going to check us when we start getting off. So we need to also allow for that accountability in our life. And then we need to share the gospel. We need to share what God's done in our life. Because it's like, imagine you had the cure for COVID and 
He said, okay, I got it for myself and just my family. And then that's it. Everybody else could die, right? That's tragic, right? But that's what the gospel is for us. Is we have what is salvation for our souls. And the world is, is fading away. And time is short. So we see we need that personal relationship with God, don't we? So that we can grow. We can do those things he's called us to do. So I encourage you guys, know and understand that Jesus, he loves you. He came to this world to die on the cross for your sins so that you can be used by him and have this adventure set before you, the plan that God has for your life. And so let's wrap up this year as we're, we're coming close to the end, continuing with what God has been doing in our hearts. Being ready when he says jump, when he, when he opens that new door. When it, be ready when he tells us to endure and to grow stronger in the Lord. Amen. Let's pray.